Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Unintentional drug overdoses caused the deaths of 4,050 Ohio residents in 2016, the highest number of deaths on record from drug overdose, reflecting a 32.8% increase compared to 2015. Ohio Republicans favor repealing Obamacare and rolling back Ohio's Medicaid expansion. But Medicaid expansion increased access to drug treatment for some 200,000 low-income Ohioans that were struggling with drug abuse issues. Republicans argue that it's not sustainable and that Ohio would be better off if the feds sent money to the state in the form of block grants that could then be used on programs that best fit the state's needs. Here to share his views and his 12-point plan on how to fight the epidemic is Ohio Attorney General and gubernatorial candidate Mike DeWine. So, Attorney General DeWine, welcome. Great, good to be with you. Thank you very much. Okay, so let's start off by just talking about, could you share with our audience why the opioid epidemic is so important to you personally? You know, I see the damage uh, that this epidemic has done every single day. When I talk to families who have lost a loved one, when I talk to recovering addicts, and, you know, if you do it by the numbers, it's just it's just shocking as well. Uh, we're losing, we think, about 15 people a day who die of an overdose of drugs in Ohio. We have babies born every single day who are addicted because the mom is addicted. Uh, our foster care system is really bursting at the seams because half of all the kids in foster care are there because one or both parents are drug addicts. Uh, our county jails have become really detox centers. And the thing that is harder to quantify, but it doesn't mean it's any less real, is the number of Ohioans who cannot pass a drug test. And because they cannot pass a drug test, they're not living up to their full God-given potential. They can't be hired, for example, to work around machinery. They can't be hired to drive a lift truck or to drive a truck or even to run your local fast food restaurant. Sure. Uh, because all those positions, generally, someone has to, to take a drug test to be able to have those jobs. Big impact on our economy. Who knows how big? So, Attorney General, you introduced in October 30th, in fact, you introduced a 12-point plan to combat the crisis called Recovery Ohio. And it includes giving power to Ohio's governor to declare a public health emergency statewide or in specific areas. A couple of questions on that. I, I thought, and generally it's believed, that he has that power already, so I guess he doesn't. And the other question is, why not declare it an actual state of emergency, like other states have done, six other states? Well, I think we're dealing really with semantics here. I mean, I, I, first of all, 
let me say, I don't think we've had enough urgency uh, in regard to this crisis. I mean, imagine if 15 people were killed today, uh, you know, in Athens, Ohio, and we look down on our smartphone or, or hear it on the radio or TV, and then 15 more are killed the next day by terrorists, you know, in, in Mansfield, and on and on. You know, we would be up in arms, yet we're losing, we think, about 15 people every single day. So, first of all, there's got to be more of a sense of, of urgency. Uh, what we tried to do in this plan, and by the way, you know, what this plan really is, is a, a vision of what I would do as governor, and these would be things that I would hope to accomplish as as governor. Some of them we're already doing uh, as the attorney general, but some of them, frankly, I can't do as, as the attorney general. But this one, which is our, our number one, uh, is really to give the governor the ability to declare a public health emergency. And what we are trying to do is give him more power. For example, uh, he, he could accelerate the process for state licenses in regard to critical uh, professions, uh, such as medical or social work fields, um, just to do things that would be reactive to this, this particular crisis. Um, we think with that type of legislation, uh, we could expand the governor's authority about as far as we could take it from a constitutional point of view. Does your plan include mobilizing the operations center like they've done in other states, such as Maryland, in fact? I was out in Maryland a couple of weeks ago doing a podcast there and talking with them about why they declared a state of emergency, and they said that that was their number one reason was to deploy the command center. Does your plan include that? Yeah, we could we could use the, the command center. I don't really specify whether we do or we do not, but um, there needs to be more coordination. I mean, here, here's kind of how I envision how we should approach this problem. We should have somebody in the governor's office, uh, in the executive branch, who coordinates all efforts. And so, you know, that is, is one of the items that one of our 12, where I say, I don't use the term drugs are, because I just don't like the term, but it's basically someone who directly reports to the governor who has authority across across all different cabinet positions to, to coordinate our effort. And, you know, it has to be holistic. We have to do the law enforcement side, but we also have to do prevention, education, uh, and, and we have to do more in regard to treatment. So I see that as being a, a coordinated central focus in the state where people could have one place to go. At the same time, though, I'm convinced that this is something that we will be successful on if we mobilize local communities. So we need to rely a lot on grassroots efforts uh, assisted by, by the state. But ultimately, I think it comes down to what each and every individual community does, how they come together, bringing, for example, the educators, uh, the treatment people, the law enforcement people, the faith-based community, all have to come together. And if you look at the communities in Ohio that have started to really make some progress, it's those communities that have pulled everybody together and got everybody maybe a little bit out of their comfort zone and a little bit out of their kind of their own stovepipe and put them together working together. So I see from the state level a real coordination in regard to that, but also depending on the local community uh, to, to, to do that. So filling that role, that was part of your 12-point plan, but that would be something that you would do as governor, not necessarily something that you'll be doing as the AG. Is that right? No, I don't, I don't really have the ability to do that. I mean, I'll tell you what we have done. We have tried to do that as much as we could in the Attorney General's office. Uh, we have created a unit of six people, and what they do is they don't do the normal law enforcement things that the Attorney General's office does, but what they do is work with local communities and try to be kind of a clearinghouse. You know, if someone is in a, in a village and they say, gee, what could we be doing, they can call the Attorney General's office. Uh, you know, we'll put Alicia on the phone or, or Jennifer or someone in that unit 
who will talk with them and say, look, here's what's been used in other communities. Here's some of the resources that are really available. So we try to use the Attorney General's office, not really as something that historically the Attorney General does or really in our job description, but we felt there was a need to do that. And so we are doing that. When I'm governor, you know, we're going to do that more. We're going to do it uh, with certainly a lot more resources than we have now. In Indiana, they've gotten together with a project that they call, it's a statewide project to consolidate data, and they call it Big Data. We interviewed them last month. Um, Your plan, Ohio Recovery, includes a 21st century law enforcement data infrastructure that allows real-time statewide data sharing and brings state-of-the-art data analytics to crime prediction. Tell us a little bit about the data that you'll be able to get out of that that we can't get today. Well, I think it's interesting that you've referred, you know, to several what other states are doing, and I think that is great because that's one of the things that we'll want to do, um, you know, in a DeWine governor's administration, a DeWine Houston administration, is to look what other states are doing. A part of that is making sure there's a real, in real time, understanding of the opiate epidemic. Uh, our data is not soon enough. Uh, you know, we should have a situation where, on a weekly basis, we know, you know, what people are dying from. Uh, we see that some in cases that are brought to our crime lab, as we, we've seen a movement you know, from pain meds to heroin now, now to the fentanyl and the carfentanil. But we need that in much, much better pinpointed in, in real time. The other thing that I'm envisioning is real sharing of data between police departments. We have about 950 police departments in the state of Ohio, and that is our strength, but it's also when we're dealing with the Mexican drug cartel, um, you know, is, is our weakness. So what I want to do uh, is to combat the Mexican drug cartel and the others who are selling drugs is have a central law enforcement repository of information that goes beyond just arrests and goes beyond just convictions. In other words, that digs deeper. An example would be a car gets pulled over and, you know, marijuana is found or let's say pain meds are found, or, uh, you know, opioid, heroin is found. And what that nor- that police department would do in their own records is they would record who was, who was in that car. They would, you know, talk about, they would record the license plate. They would have all kinds of data. That data, uh, with the exception of who was arrested, uh, may not ever make it into a statewide database. And what we want to do is have more information in that database so that information that is in, might be important in, in a neighboring community, it might be important across the, across the state, is actually available. So more data, uh, you know, we're, we're going to restrict the ask, access only to law enforcement. It has to be done for law enforcement purposes. It's, it is a crime in Ohio to use this type data for anything but law enforcement purposes. But I think it, if we're going to really combat the drug cartels, in real time, we've got to have real time data to be shared between law enforcement agencies. As part of Ohio Recovery, you have expand proven drug task force models that specifically target and disrupt the flow of money and drugs from Mexican drug cartels. I'm sure that uh, the example that you've just uh, discussed is one of them. Are there others? We have what we call uh, multi jurisdiction task forces in Ohio. Uh, many of them come under the Attorney General's office in what we call uh, the Organized Crime Commission, which is, uh, as I said, under the Attorney General's office. We have found a model that really, I believe, started with Homeland Security 
uh, to be very, very successful. And it's a model that uses these task forces. And in a task force, by the way, you might have the DEA, you might have the FBI, uh, you certainly would have the sheriff, you would have local law enforcement, and you would have our office, of BCI, working together in a particular geographical area. The task forces that have been most successful in regard to the drug problem are task forces that focus on the Mexican drug cartels, that focus on seizing and arresting big dealers, uh, the Mexican cartels who bring the drugs into the state of Ohio. And so we focus on arrest, but also seizing the drugs. What you see going out of the state uh, is money going back to Mexico, cash, as well as guns. And so we have had, we have two of these very, very successful task forces in Ohio uh, that have done a very good job in seizing the drugs, seizing money, and seizing uh, guns that are going back to Mexico. What I would like to do with additional money is to expand these to every area of the state of Ohio so that we get much better coverage uh, in regard to doing that. And, and Gary, we're, we're running running short on time, so okay. we probably do let's do, you want to do one, one more? Yes, that'd be fantastic. So, um, Attorney General, nearly 200,000 low-income adults, most of them uninsured, are able to receive addiction help for addiction and substance use disorder under the state's hard-fought Medicaid expansion program. What is your position on extending Medicaid expansion? You know, I think what we're going to face, uh, it appears coming out of Washington, is a cutback in Medicaid. Now, that may be a a real cutback in real dollars, so we have less, or it may be uh, a reduction in the expansion every year. Um, but I, I don't think anybody who is looking at this thinks that uh, the current level of Medicaid is sustainable in Washington. So we're going to be faced, by the time I'm governor, with less money. Um, so it's, what I hope, though, is that we are given the opportunity to make our own decisions in Ohio in regard to our priorities. Uh, if we have that flexibility, and I hope and I think we will, you know, we certainly will prioritize people with a mental health problem and people who have an addiction problem. Uh, these are certainly two areas that are very important. These are areas that the Medicaid expansion has helped. Uh, we, have, we have seen, for example, uh, the sheriffs who have uh, addicts uh, who are detoxing in their jail, uh, signing them up for Medicaid before they walk out the door so that they can continue to get some sort of help. Um, so we're going to do everything with the limited resources that are going to be available, everything that we can to continue to target uh, those individuals who do not have the money, who do not have the insurance, uh, so that they can get they can get some help. Attorney General DeWine, what uh, final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners about the opioid epidemic here in Ohio and what you would do as governor to fight it? I would invite people to see what I'm going to do or what I, what I hope to do, what our vision is, to go up on the Ohio Attorney General's webpage, look for our Recovery Ohio Plan. They can also find that on our campaign webpage, Recovery Ohio Plan. Um, take a look at that. That's what my vision is. I think that we need a sense of urgency that we have not had. Um, you know, if this was a, a, a invader who came into Ohio, a terrorist who came into Ohio and caused this much havoc and misery, uh, we would be mobilized. Uh, while many Ohioans are mobilized, many Ohioans are doing great, great things, we need a stronger sense of urgency. I will bring that sense of urgency uh, as governor of the state. Uh, but I, I just want to thank everyone out there who very quietly, many times silently, 
is working in community after community to save lives. You know, you're doing a great job. Keep up the great work. Keep working because uh, that is making a difference. Uh, and we may, you may never know the exact lives that you have saved, but your work is, is in fact saving lives, even as this opiate epidemic moves from now from the pain meds to the heroin, now to this god-awful fentanyl uh, that they're mixing in. And so that really is what is keeping our numbers of deaths so high. But in spite of that, we still have people who are working and making a difference every single day. Well, thank you again, Attorney General DeWine, for joining us today. Thanks for you know putting on the air this discussion and other discussions. It's so important to really be discussing this. Joining me now is Jennifer Lloyd, who's the Director of Statewide Outreach on Substance Use, and Leanne Cornian, who is the Director of Children's Initiatives at Attorney General Mike DeWine's office. One of the things that I wanted to just kind of curious about are the drug courts. And under the uh, Recovery Ohio plan, you mentioned expansion of those. Can you share why this is just so, so important to make one of the you know, top 12 initiatives in the plan there? Well, I think that's a very good question, and I would say if you really want to understand that, the best thing to go is, is go sit in one, uh, honestly. And I've, you know, been fortunate to sit through in a couple of myself, and one in which, you know, I had been following the progress of a young man for some time. And, and it wasn't just what I saw occur in the court. It was as I got to know folks who had had the opportunity, and that's how it should be viewed, to be in drug court, um, and what it afforded them as you know, I, when I first heard of them, as an example, uh, was in when I was in Scioto County, and I remember interviewing a, a young lady who said that. You know, I'm so fortunate because only about two percent of us who should be in drug court have the great opportunity to be in drug court, and and so for her, it provided her with an opportunity to um, not only, of course, have a, a sober, clean lifestyle, but it, if she followed the rules, because there are certainly rules. Um, she was able to have her felony removed from her record. And, you know, this is a very young girl who kind of grew up in pr pretty harsh circumstances. Um, and she's now, you know, doing great. And had she been incarcerated or going to the past, I don't know if that would be true. Um, we see a lot of different flavors of what I'll call drug courts throughout the state, which is not unusual when we look at anything throughout the state, is that there's often some changes that better work for that county or that, you know, area that it's sitting in because, you know, certainly if you look at, you know, Judge Mattia may have more resources at his disposal than somebody in a more remote area. So we, we certainly will look at all those kind of factors and to ensure that, that we're getting the best results and that people have a chance to, you know, stay out of uh, prison or jail. Um, but, you know, because but they have to follow the plan, right? It's not, I think that some people think it's kind of this, uh, yeah, you're in drug court, you're, you're, everything's great. No, it's, it's a pretty long, very intensive uh, program for the folks who are lucky enough to get into them. Last week when we talked to the AG, we didn't have an opportunity to get to the final step in his plan, which was expanded early intervention programs that target Ohio's family and uh, children. They're in foster care. And it's based upon the START program, which is sobriety treatment and reducing trauma. So, Leanne, can you tell us a little bit about where we stand? You and I talked about this program some time ago. Um, can you bring us up to date in terms of where the program stands today? 
Absolutely. So our Ohio Start program was initially announced in March of 2016. Uh, so we are um, almost at a year. We've still got a couple months to go. During uh, the past few months, we have really been working towards uh, hiring workforce in, in every single county, and that would include uh, both a dedicated caseworker to uh, take on these extremely complex cases of families who are struggling with both substance abuse and child maltreatment. Uh, because these are such intensive cases, uh, as Jennifer alluded to, uh, recovery is very challenging to achieve with opioids. It takes several years. Um, unfortunately, relapse is frequently involved, so these cases can be very long and very drawn out. Um, so a dedicated caseworker really is needed to provide the care um, and day-to-day and -day interaction that these families need. In so, addition to the dedicated caseworker, we've been working with counties to bring on board an individual called a family peer mentor. This is someone who has lived addiction experience, who has achieved recovery for a sustained period of time, and who has gone through the state certification process uh, for uh, certified peer mentors. Um, they are not obligated to uh, work under the state's framework, but we did want to ensure that they had a certain level of training um, to ensure quality of care with families. So we've been really drilling down with our, with our counties who are participating, trying to identify uh, individuals who can fill these positions. We've also been working on training all of these folks. So we have uh, done, at this point, probably dozens of training hours, maybe even near 100 training hours for, for these folks who are going through um, or going to be implementing this pilot program. In addition to that, we've been finalizing agreements between behavioral health providers who are going to provide a preferred pathway for our families into both uh, mental health services to address both childhood and parental trauma and um, drug treatment programs to ensure that these parents aren't placed on a three-month waiting list to get into detox and during that time um, potentially um, disengaging from the child welfare system. So we have uh, also been adding partners to uh, this pilot program. We've been bringing on board our uh, local Adam H boards. We've been engaging our State Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Um, we have been engaging, um, as I already mentioned, local providers, all sorts of folks um, who in some capacity touch and serve these families uh, in a myriad of ways. So it's been a lot of coalition building. It's been a lot of building the infrastructure within the communities. It's been a lot of training and putting everyone through uh, the necessary coursework they need to understand the model to implement it effectively. So at this point, uh, a lot of our counties are, have all the pieces in place and are beginning to, to serve families. Um, and uh, uh, during the intake process, run families through sort of the rubric to see if they qualify. Uh, so, so we're well on our way to hopefully achieving some great outcomes for Ohio's families that are struggling with co-occurring child maltreatment and substance use disorders. And you just announced a new program today that complements all this, I believe. That's the eight pilot counties that were chosen for the foster care recruitment program. Isn't that a complementary program to this one that just you just announced? Yes. In, in many ways, it is, it is very complementary. And in fact, two of the counties that are participating in the START pilot are also participating in this foster family recruitment and family search and engagement pilot. And those two counties are Highland County and Fairfield County, which um, Highland is considered um, Appalachian. Uh, Fairfield is just kind of on the cusp of that. So we're really excited about uh, the way that these two pilot programs will complement each other and, and further 
improve uh, services to families that are in need. But essentially, the, the purpose of this pilot is twofold. The first is to implement a, a studied program that's coming out of St. Louis called 30 Days to Family. Uh, 30 Days to Family, essentially, as, as the title of the program indicates, uh, within 30 days of a child entering the child welfare system, the, the program will identify at least 80 different kinship connections. So that could include biological family, such as grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. It could also include former teachers, former neighbors, coaches, any individual who is a loved one or uh, a close connection to the child. Uh, and the purpose of this is really to find a long-term placement for the child. Uh, many of these children that are coming into custody uh, due to the opioid epidemic have very uh, diverse and complex needs. They have experienced a significant amount of trauma associated with either abuse or very severe neglect uh, due to their, their parents' um, struggles with substance use. So they have very specific and very specialized needs. Uh, they, they can have challenges when it comes to um, emotional regulation. Uh, they can be very withdrawn. They can have um, RADS, reactive attachment disorder. So they can come with a, a lot of really complex needs. And what we're seeing is that these children are disrupting very frequently in a lot of their foster care placements, uh, which then ultimately leads to further traumatization and, and even more complex challenges. So the goal is to really find someone within the child's sort of um, nucleus of, of uh, family and friends that can provide the specialized care and just really deeply love on this child so that they can address that trauma, overcome those obstacles, and, and achieve permanency long term, should mom and dad not be able to achieve recovery uh, and reunify with the child. So that's prong number one. Prong number two is what we know about um, the opioid epidemic is that, uh, very unfortunately, it can be a generational issue. So sometimes there will not be a family or kinship placement that is appropriate to place this child in. So that means sometimes we need to go out of sort of that concentric circle of, of family and friends and look beyond uh, this child's kinship network to identify uh, a healthy, positive placement. Right now, there are well over 15,000 children in foster care but there's only about 7,200 foster homes uh, that are licensed in the state. That doesn't mean that 7,200 homes are accepting children. Uh, some may be um, sort of on hold because they just had a really complex child uh, that was in their home. Some may be full right now with foster, with foster children. So we as a state really need to invest more in recruiting foster families um, who are willing to welcome children into their home uh, with the knowledge that very well these kids may be removed sometime in the next two years. Um, and also, you know, folks who are willing to take on these very complex cases. So uh, we, we will be implementing this pilot program in eight counties. We have a great sort of uh, diverse array of counties who are participating, very rural communities, um, urban communities. Uh, so and we have a great geographic spread everywhere from northeast um, to uh, northwest. Central and, and Southern Ohio. So we're yeah. really excited about the work that this pilot program is going to do and the ways that it's going to complement and accompany uh, the work of Ohio Start. Well, hey, I want to thank you both. This has uh, really been informative, and I'm particularly excited about this latest program. This has been the second in our series of podcasts leading up to the Ohio gubernatorial election. Joining us today to discuss his plans to address the opioid epidemic, if elected, was Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine, Republican candidate for governor. Also joining us today 
was Jennifer Lloyd, who's the Director of Statewide Outreach on Substance Use, and Leanne uh, Cornian, the Director of Children's Initiative at Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine's office. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.